Good evening. I think you know when you're really old, when you need an extra light on the podium. We live in a numbing world. The digital world and the media tsunami overwhelm us, and we can barely often get in sound bites. But today, this evening, I would like to ask you to marshal your mind and heart and come with me for a glimpse of this world that our God so loves, the world whose anguish he bears. And he has asked us to look with him, to step away from the numbing and listen to his heart and his thoughts. So come, listen and see with me a small piece of the heart of our God for this fearful fallen world. We have, <clears throat> we have as you know, national, natural disasters. We have genocides, child soldiers, and wars around the world. Our eyes are currently fixed on Ukraine. Trafficking is worldwide. It is also local. And relentless systemic violence in our own inner cities and grievously in many of our churches. All of these events produce traumatized human beings. According to Amnesty International, one in three females are beaten or coerced into sex or otherwise abused in their lifetime. One in three. You think about that statistic the next time you walk through an airport or a crowded marketplace or sit in a church. More girls have been killed in the last 50 years simply because they were girls than men were killed in all the battles of the 20th century. According to UN accounts, in some areas, three quarters of females have been raped. It is intended to disfigure and torture these women in order to terrorize and control the general population. It is a power play used for control and subjugation, not just of the women, but all those who live with them. And please do not think that such terrors only happen to females alone. In the US, statistically, the number of men raped in a year is zero. The estimated number of men actually raped, according to the Department of Justice, is 93,000. Rape and sexual abuse organizations have reported an increase in men seeking help. Boys born to ethnic minorities who are poor and raised in homes without a father are at much greater risk. In the sixth grade, the rate of using alcohol, cocaine, marijuana, and IV drugs was 25 to 50 times higher for boys who had experienced some kind of sexual abuse. Abused boys have 12 times the normal suicide rate and go on to have higher rates of mental illness. Among men with mental illness, 40% report childhood sexual abuse. 
all of these things, from natural disasters to genocide to rape and abuse, things we find very difficult to comprehend or to hold in our minds are endured by precious human beings. They result in traumatized human beings who live with the recurring, tormenting memories of atrocities witnessed and or born. It infects their sleep with horrific nightmares. It destroys their relationships, their capacity to work or study. It torments their emotions, and it shatters their faith and mutilates their hope. Many are rendered mute and unmoving. Trauma is indeed extraordinary, not because it rarely happens, but because it overwhelms normal human coping. It swallows up and destroys normal human ways of living and learning. The usual response to atrocity is to try and forget it. We want to remove it from our mind. Those who have been traumatized want to flee the memory of the occurrence, and we who hear it find we want to flee also. We find it too terrible to remember and too incomprehensible to put adequately into words. And that is why we use the phrase unspeakable atrocities. It continues to live on and sometimes scream in the mind, even as we push it away. And that push-pull between the need to forget and the need to speak is the central dialectic of trauma. And that tension is not only experienced by individuals and families, but also by churches and nations. It is experienced not only by the traumatized, but by those who bear witness to the trauma. I know something of this tension because as a psychologist, I have worked for 50 years with child abuse, rape, and violence of many kinds, including combat, genocide, and trafficking. I have seen this push-pull in my clients who are terrified to remember and speak, but who cannot forget. I have seen families, churches, cities, and yes, nations deny both the existence of evil and trauma in its midst as well as its life-shaping impact. I also know this tension exists in those who bear witness. We see it on television, on the internet. Someone tells an atrocity and soon after we look for ways to remove ourselves from that. Such stories threaten our comfort our position, and our system. The stories are vile and messy, and they disrupt us. Traumatized people need attention and assistance, often for a long time. The trauma stories of our own families or institutions and organizations get buried in geographical distance, and the push of a button enable us to forget entire nations. We are, however, the church. That means we are the body of Jesus Christ, and he is our head. In the physical realm, a body that does not follow its head is a sick body. This is also true in the spiritual realm. We are his people, and I believe with all my heart that he has called us to go out of ourselves and follow him into the suffering in this world. And we are to do so bearing his 
character and his word. And we do go. We send missionaries, we teach the scriptures, we provide food and clean water and education and jobs. And we should. I fear we are just beginning to see that trauma is a place of service. If we think carefully about the extensive natural disasters in our time, things like earthquakes or hurricanes or tsunamis, and combine those with uh, victims with the many man-made disasters like wars or inner cities, genocides, trafficking, rape, and child abuse, we would have a staggering, overwhelming number of precious humans. I believe that if we would stop and look out on the suffering, we would stop and we would begin to realize that trauma is perhaps the greatest mission field of the 21st century. Several years ago, I was in Ghana speaking for a conference on violence against women and children. And while I was there, I was taken by a woman to the Cape Coast Castle. It was a large stone fort on the waterline. Hundreds of thousands of Americans were forced through its dungeons and through the door of no return onto slave ships. There were five dungeon chambers for males. Descending into the utter darkness in one of them felt claustrophobic. 200 men shackled and chained together stayed in that dungeon for about three months before they were shipped across the Atlantic. We stood in one of the male dungeons listening to the, in the darkness to the whole horrific story when our guide said this. Do you know what is above the dungeon, he asked. We shook our heads. The chapel, he said. Directly above 200 shackled men, some of them already dead, others screaming, all of them sitting in filth, sat God worshipers. They sang. They ran, read the scriptures. They prayed. I suppose they took up an offering for those less fortunate. The slaves could hear the service. The worshipers could sometimes hear the slaves, though they had people down there making them behave so as not to disturb church. It took my breath away. The evil, the suffering, the humiliation, the injustice caused by those who said they were worshiping in the chapel was all overwhelming, and the visual parable was stunning. The people in the chapel were numb to the horrific trauma and suffering beneath them, suffering they had created for profit. Under the form of worship in that chapel in Ghana lay the darkness of slavery, oppression, and tyranny, all things that blight and destroy human beings created in the image of our God. But I think that you know that Christianity does not look like being folded up with evil and worship on top of, of dungeons. Following Christ does not look like complicity with a system that butters our bread and fills our coffers built on the backs of those created in the image of God. It does not look like praying and singing and giving money on top of screaming. 
unspeakable suffering, filth, and death. Our guide pointed up to the church above and said this, heaven above, hell below. But I would argue that heaven was not above, because as we know, that is not what heaven does. And what is it that heaven does? Heaven actually does, what, what heaven actually does is the reason we're here this evening. Heaven leaves the chapel. It goes down into the dungeon in order to bring those so enslaved out into light and freedom so they might turn and go back into the dungeons and bring out more. Heaven uses all power to bless. God has sown his life in you and me. In the midst of this dark and fallen world, filled with ruined humanity, he has sown his life in us, and he's thrown us out. He has, however, made it very clear that the enemy has sown seed as well, and it is growing and maturing right in with the wheat. It is with us. It is not just out there. God has said so, and he said it will be that way until he returns. The Cape Coast dungeons were hidden under the chapel. They were not a separate building, and they were not outside the walls of the fort. Our God has called us not to ignore the dungeons in or under or outside our sanctuaries. And that's why we're here, to think about that. The problem, you see, is that trauma does not usually stop without intervention, and it does not heal apart from being spoken and cared for. And it needs to be spoken and heard in the context of a safe relationship where the dignity of the one who is crushed is restored. That requires presence, doesn't it? That means we have to go. That means we have to listen. We have to sit with. We have to be present to the truth of the evil. We have to be impacted by it and respond with honor and love for the abused. But is that not, in fact, what our Lord has done for us? He left glory and came down to this traumatized world. And oh, how he listened as he became flesh like us. He literally got into our skin and found out what it's like to be us. He was fully present to the truth of this groaning creation and was eternally impacted by its evil and suffering. He still bears the scars. He sat with us, and he bestowed honor to crushed human beings, and he reached out in love. He did not flee the atrocities of our world or our hearts. He is, in fact, the crucified one, the traumatized one. Work with the traumatized will not fit easily into neat programs. There is no quick success. The numbers are not astounding. We do it one by one. But it is the way our Lord went. And I long for the church of Jesus Christ to capture this vision. Traumatized people are desperate. The doors are open and they are starving for help for their minds and their souls. The key 
is to let ourselves truly see that vast need and not flee the atrocities or the devastated lives. When our God interfaces with this world, he leaves the higher and descends. He leaves beauty and he enters chaos. He leaves pure and he goes into filthy. And he demonstrates that our God does not just speak words, but he also acts, first in the heart dungeons of human beings, you and me, and through the lives of those same people into the dungeons of this world. Jesus demonstrated in the flesh and the character of God, his church is to do the same for the world. When God's people worship over and separate and untouched by dungeons, they are not worshiping the God of the scriptures. There is nothing in the scriptures to suggest that being complicit, neutral, or uncaring and deaf to the cries of humans is godly. Those scriptures do say that the dungeons at Cape Coast Castle were below because they were first present in the hearts of the so-called worshipers. So how are we to respond to the traumatized? Let's consider what it means to live with trauma memories. Anyone with trauma memories wants them to go away. That seems obvious. If they cannot get them to disappear, then they want to be able to try to forget them. They want to hide them from themselves. Those who try to hide or forget them also know the experience of having them continue to break through no matter what. Listen to a quote from a trauma survivor. I live beside it. It is right there, fixed, unchangeable, wrapped in the tough skin of memory that separates itself from the present me. I wish the skin to become tougher, for I fear it will grow thinner and crack, permitting the trauma to spill out and capture me. Here's another quote. My head is filled with garbage. All those images, you know, and sounds, and my nostrils filled with smells, you can't cut it out. It's like another skin beneath your skin, and you cannot shed it. I am not like you. You have one vision of life, and I have two. I have a double life. The woman who said these things was a survivor of the Nazi Holocaust. And she has described a very common experience for those who have been traumatized. Though she tries to forget or hide the memory from herself, it continues to live beside her. And she's always afraid it's going to reach out and grab her. You cannot erase trauma memories. Psychologist Bruno Bellenheim said this, what cannot be talked about can also not be put to rest. And if it is not, the wounds continue to fester, listen, from generation to generation. Following a traumatic experience, every human must make the heartbreaking adjustment to a new world full of loss. You might be five years old or 35. Trauma involves an event that threatens life or physical safety that takes away choice and results in overwhelming fear. This includes violence, rape, sexual abuse, physical abuse. When these things happen to human beings, they feel alone, 
helpless, humiliated, and hopeless. Following trauma, people turn inward, away from life, because the memories and the feelings are all they can handle. They can't handle what's here and what's here at the same time. However, eventually, life has to go on. And so the person must return to the outside world in some fashion. What kinds of things are needed to help people who have suffered trauma face what is on the inside, remember it well, speak the truth in safety, and yet over time be able to return to life in a way that is good? Recovery involves a reversal of the experience of trauma. Trauma brings silence because it feels like there are no words to adequately describe what happened. And in fact, that's true. Trauma brings emotional darkness and isolation because it feels like no one cares and no one could possibly understand. Trauma makes time stand still because you get so lost in what happened you can't see forward and you've lost hope. There are three things that must occur to reverse this and bring about healing. All three must happen, not just one of them. It will never be enough. Uh, the three things are three very basic words, talking, tears, and time. So let's look at each one. Talking is, of course, a part of being human, yes? It's how God made us. He made us to talk, to express ourselves, to dialogue together, to talk with him and to each other. When someone does not or cannot talk, something is broken. There may be something physically wrong, or there may be deep emotional wounds. Sometimes when people do not talk at all, or they do not talk about a particular event or time in their life, it is because the pain is so great they cannot find adequate words anyway. Or they just keep saying the same thing over and over and over again, trying to find the right words, trying to get relief. When 9-11 happened, I was invited to come up to the uh, Ground Zero to meet with the workers there for a while. And um, they were digging in the sand of what used to be buildings, looking for human beings. And I met with a woman who had been in one of the towers around Ground Zero when the, tra the planes hit. And this is what she said to me when she sat down. She saw people jumping out of the, the buildings to try and save their own lives. She said this, I saw the color of their ties. I saw the color of their ties. I saw the color of the ties. Do you hear me? I saw the color of their ties. I don't know how many times she said it. That's very typical of a trauma victim. Talking is absolutely necessary for recovery, however. Even though words are inadequate, they must be spoken. To remain silent is to fail to honor the event, the wound, the memory. By honoring the memory, I mean speaking the truth about it, saying it really happened, saying what happened was really evil, and saying that it really did damage. It dishonors victims when we are silent about their experience or pretend it did not occur or was not important. Talking says, I'm here. 
Do you see me? Do you see what I saw? What happened to me was wrong. I am damaged by it. Justice is needed, and so is care for my soul. At the beginning, talking might not be done using words. Sometimes people have no words. Sometimes they can only make a noise, like a moan or a cry or a scream. It is the beginning of finding their voice when they do that. Many times people need to sit, have someone sit with them in silence. They have no words. They're shut up by the trauma. And they need someone to sit with their shut upness and be safe. It's a way of joining with them so they're not alone in that experience of struggling to find words. Eventually, words must come. And sometimes people need help with that. They, can't, they don't just start out with a paragraph. And oftentimes, they can't start out with a word at all. Sometimes, I will say to people, I'm going to say one word, and I want you to shake your head yes or no if it fits what you're feeling. And that's how it helps to give them words. So I give them a word. And they say, yes, yes, yes. And sometimes they say no. Other times, people can't respond by words at all. And so you not only have to help them find words, but sometimes you have to help them start without words. And so people do something like, can you draw me a picture of what it feels like? Sometimes you just get black crayon across a page. But they're saying something when they do that, and it is the beginning of finding words. Talking is about telling the truth. It connects the survivor to another person. If they tell you your story, now they're not alone. Somebody else carries their story. It restores dignity because their story matters, and it matters because they're a human being. It gives them choice. They can decide to speak or stop. They can decide to be silent for a while and they get to choose their own words. Again, it is a reversal of what happened during the trauma. Injustice, violence, and abuse teach us lies. Such events suggest we're worthless and we do not matter. Trauma tells the truth and gives dignity because the story does matter and it matters because it happened to a human being who was created in the image of God and it gives them dignity when you listen. Violence and abuse disconnect us from caring relationships. We are alone. We are not considered. What we think or feel or want doesn't matter. We are used and tossed aside and silenced. Telling this trauma story gives a place of caring connection that cares for the soul. Trauma recovery requires talking. And then you find that the story is repeated over and over and over and as that happens, new details are connected to it. It takes a lot of strength to speak that story and grasp the truth. Trauma recovery also requires tears. I expect all of us have shed some of those at some point in our lifetimes. Many have had the experience, I'm sure, of wanting to cry, but somehow you can't. Many have had the experience of being told they should not cry. Trauma recovery requires tears. Facing a new world full of losses brings grief. Many emotions are the companions of trauma. Fear, sadness, 
Isolation, humiliation, despair, anger, and grief are some of them. These are strong emotions, ones that are not welcomed by humans, and they are hard to experience. These are not feelings any of us want in our lives. However, like words, they too must be expressed. Feelings tell the story just as much as words tell the story. Both of them tell the story. Feelings express what the trauma did to the victim, just like blood shows what a cut did to the skin. It is like seeing and acknowledging the physical wound on the body after an accident. Feelings are the expression of the wound of the heart, and they need to be seen and heard. For many people, words come first. Choosing words, saying words, having someone listen and honor them, and it connects them, when they do that, with a caring person in the place where they have been wounded. But many survivors try it hard to feel and will often say things like, if I start crying, I will never stop. Or, if I let myself feel the grief or the hopelessness, I will fall into a black hole and I'll never find my way out. Many will try hard not to feel anything, and oftentimes people will do things like use alcohol or drugs to help them feel numb. They think if they anesthetize themselves, they can keep the memories and feelings away. Of course, it doesn't work. When people do such things, they spend their lives controlled by the trauma, because everything they do is about running from it. It's just as much in charge of their lives as it was when it was occurring. It's very important for all of us to remember that telling a trauma story, facing the truth, and expressing the deep and painful emotions that accompany trauma takes tremendous courage. Most people cannot do it alone, nor should they. They need connection with a caring and patient person to help them have the courage to face the truth that happened, how it hurt them, the thing they most want to forget. They need a companion in their lament, a companion in their tragedy and difficulty, and as we know ourselves, companions help us have courage. Many emotions cannot be adequately expressed in words, and so oftentimes I will have people do nonverbal things. They might draw or paint something in order to show the emotion, the sadness, the grief, the fear. Many years ago, I saw a woman with a history of sexual abuse, and she couldn't find words for the feelings. She was a dancer, a ballet dancer, and I sent her home to create a dance. And she created one that told the story of what happened and how she felt. And she came back to see me, and she did the dance for me in the office. She had long hair, and when she was finished, she was all curled up in a ball, and she took her hair and threw it over her face to show how much she had disappeared as a result of what had happened to her. Sometimes people write songs or poems. I encourage people to write their own laments. I teach them about lament in the scripture, and then they go and write their own that's personalized about what happened to them. 
As humans express deep feelings through creative avenues, good feelings too, like love and joy, begin to show up and they can express those. It is very helpful to encourage trauma survivors to use such means for their pain, particularly when words won't come. There's a verse in the book of Psalms, chapter 56, you, God, have taken account of my grieving and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not also in your book? So they're doubly remembered. That's a very important truth because we are often uncomfortable with strong emotions and we feel like we won't know what to do with someone else's. Maybe, there may be cultural things that say strong emotions are not okay or religious teachings that say so or say that such emotions show unbelief and are therefore bad. And so we need to find ways to help those things be expressed and to help them see that such grief and loss were expressed in the scriptures without condemnation. The, the verse tells us that God who created us considers our pain. He pays attention to it. He's putting the tears in a bottle. That's a meticulous thing to do. He writes them in his book. They matter. Our feelings matter to the God of the universe. He is recording our story and our tears. He will help others in the, we will help others in their recovery if we learn to be like him in this area. We honor others and help them record the story of their trauma when we listen to their words and when we listen to their tears. Tears require strength and courage. It means facing great pain. Many of those who are traumatized will be afraid and they feel the feelings related to the trauma and they want to shut it down. They fear losing control of themselves. They fear the pain and suffering they will endure. Those fears are understandable for the feelings surrounding the trauma are very powerful. Dealing with and healing from such feelings will never occur easily. Feeling will alternate with numbness and exhaustion. Those breaks are necessary and they are not to be rushed or criticized. It feels much safer to experience the emotions of trauma with someone else who will listen, who will assure you that your feelings make sense, actually, that they're normal under those circumstances, and who will not condemn them. You will find that many trauma survivors often have one or two specific memories that carry more clarity and words than of some of the others. And in some ways, they become symbolic of the whole experience. Sometimes we can figure that out by listening well and hearing what memory or part of the memory the survivor keeps repeating. Those segments represent the whole in some way. They tell the whole story somehow. There was a, a man many years ago I saw who grew up in the inner city and he witnessed a great deal of violence on the streets and in the home. He was repeatedly raped by his stepfather. He vividly remembers one day looking out the Venetian blinds in the front of the house and he saw his mother walking down the sidewalk. And he began from then on to see life through 
the blinds. She went away and never came back. She left him to his abusive stepfather. And so he didn't know it at the time, but the great moment of his utter abandonment to his stepfather happened at that time looking through the blinds. And when he first came to see me, he talked about, I always see life like it's looking through blinds, and I don't know why. And until he told his story, he did not understand what that was about. But seeing life through the blinds meant, number one, people can't be trusted. My mother couldn't be trusted. They always leave. And your safety is probably not going to happen, but if it does, you're going to be the one who gets it. Nobody else is going to do it for you. So you will find sometimes that people have situations like that where they remember, it's like an imprint, but it tells the bigger story, and it also helps you understand the patterns by which they try to deal with it. And as you listen to the story and the emotions, it is very important to follow the intense emotions and see what that experience teaches about what happened and the impact on the person. This aspect, again, requires lamenting. And it's very helpful to, to use some of the lament psalms, 10, 12, 13. Many take phrases of those laments, and then they are able not only to write that phrase down from the scriptures, but they're able to write their whole lament after that. It somehow gives them permission to say things that someone else has told them they didn't need to talk about. So it always helps grieving. They need to see their grieving as an act of faith. They were weeping before God. It's not a lack of faith to lament. When David wrote those laments, he was talking to God. It was an act of faith. One of the characteristics of dealing with trauma is the repetitious na uh, nature of the work. Survivors say the same things over and over again. How could my father do that to me? How could my father do that with me? And then they will also be repetitious with their emotions. I am so angry that, I am so angry that. They will repeat their losses again and again. Expect it. Learn to be with it. The magnitude of the trauma is so great that the repetition is absolutely necessary. The mind cannot really take in or even imagine what actually happened. It cannot hold such a thought. It's so overwhelming. Bearing the intensity of emotions is impossible. And so it's like feelings have to be tried on again and again because every time you try them on, they don't fit right or you don't want to wear them. So you take them off. These are attempts to bear what cannot be born. These are struggles to integrate into life what does not fit because there's actually no categories for some of these things. Be patient and then be patient some more. And keep in mind that while God is working with the person you are helping, he always works both sides. Talking and telling the story and expressing the feelings that go with the tragedy are necessary instruments in the hands of the victim that they can use in their own healing. It's a way of gaining mastery over the fear that controls your life. It's a way of not feeling helpless it's a choice toward life rather than death and silence. To hear a story is to be taught, but to tell a story is to have mastery over it.
to tell the story with the emotions in a way that can be heard and understood by another human being is how it must be learned and how it must occur so that the trauma does not continue to swallow up that life. There's a third thing that must occur with trauma recovery, a third thing we have no control over. We cannot make it happen and we cannot stop it from happening. It's time. It takes time. Trauma recovery needs talking tears and time and it must have all three. If you do not tell the story, there can be no recovery. People will stay stuck in the past and controlled by the trauma and not even know it sometimes. Either because they use tremendous energy to keep away from the memory or because it controls their sleep, their relationships, their feelings, their actions, and their faith. It must be spoken over and over. Trauma recovery requires tears. Tears honor the victim and the tragedy of what occurred. Tears express buried emotions. Tears are a way of remembering. Expressing emotions and finding words is a way of gaining mastery over them and not being owned by them. In both talking and tears, the victim is basically staring down the trauma, as one might stare down an enemy, and saying to that trauma, I will speak of you. You will not silence me. I will tell how you have brought terrible pain into my life. I will remember those I lost. I will be in charge of my own story. I will give it the space and honor it is due. It mattered then and it matters now. Clearly, it takes time for these things to happen. It takes time for words to come. It takes time to listen and understand. It takes time for feelings to be expressed. Recovery from anything takes time, yes? If you fall off some steps and break a bone, it's going to take time for the doctor to understand what bone is broken, for him to understand what he needs to do to help it heal, and for it to heal. He will need to sit with and listen and explore what exactly happened to you so that he can help that leg uh, heal. You've been hurt. You're in pain. You don't want it to take time. You want it done yesterday. You want your leg to be better. You may have want the pain to be over, but it will not change the pace of the healing. No matter how much you want that, no matter how you try to talk yourself into it, your leg will still hurt, and it still needs to heal. Now, time has a funny thing about it, in case you haven't noticed. It always goes by one minute at a time. It's very frustrating sometimes, yes? And I hate to tell you this, but there's nothing you can do about it. We're stuck with that, and time is needed for recovery. It's not the same amount for each trauma survivor. Some take longer, and some do not. Some have what we now call complex trauma, which is layers of different traumas in one life. There are many reasons for this, but no matter how strong someone is and no matter how hard they work to tell their story and express their feelings, it'll still take time. And it will always take longer than they want. We know from the research, though, that as time passes, trauma survivors, as they do this work, end up carrying a much smaller piece of the whole especially if the story has been told. So as life goes on around the survivor, 
new experiences, new relationships affect them differently and they can learn new responses to their past. Over time, survivors can choose what they want to do with their suffering. They cannot erase it. But over time, as with Christ, the worst of our suffering can become redemptive to us and often to many others. So, three things. Don't forget them. Talking, tears, and time. And it has to be all three. Tears alone will not do it. Talking alone will not do it. And time alone will not do it. It requires three. In recent years, there has been more and more exposure on abuse, of abuse and trauma. Often, much of it, as you know, has been found in the house of our God. Silence about such things is not a virtue. It is not a virtue before God to cover up abuse in his house. Sadly, the body of Christ has often failed to see trauma as a place of service, and the people of God have sometimes hidden in chapels, worshiping and singing and giving money and sticking out our heads to tell others what they're doing wrong. We have often blamed those who suffer for their trauma. We have failed to recognize that systems can be corrupt and power abused, and that like our Lord, many people in this world suffer from totally undeserved injustice and trauma. We have not gone to the dungeons, and we have been blind to the fact that such refusal is merely an exposure of the dungeon in our own hearts. Hearts not like our gods, whose heart bore the anguish of this world and who entered into the dungeons of this fallen world to make all things new. Many of you here see this. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. And you want to enter in, and I am glad. A good number of you are in places of power and influence, and you do not want to hide in the chapel, and that is good. But listen, do not be seduced. In truth, the chapel is not a place, not really. It's not a building. It's not a system. It's a person. It's a head with a body. And as in the physical realm again, a body that does not follow its head is a sick body. My father was a pilot and a colonel in the United States Air Force and traveled much of the world and did all sorts of things. And when he was in his 40s, still expecting another 20-some years of work, they diagnosed him with a neurological disorder that nobody could understand. He had dropped paratroopers over Normandy, been in Operation Market Garden, commanded bases, whatever. And he couldn't get his body to do what it wanted, he wanted it to do. When I was in college, I came home for a break and I was talking to him in the family room and he asked for a glass of water. So I got up and went in the kitchen and I got the water and I came back and I stopped in the, in the doorway and he didn't see me. And I watched him, he was sitting in his chair and he was trying to stand up by himself when he couldn't do it. So I brought him the water, but while he was standing there, this is what my brain said, a body, that does not follow its head 
is a very sick body. What I did not realize was that God had just given me an illustration. It took me years to figure that one out, but that's what it was. And when the church does not look like her head, it is a very sick body. You think about it. Many of you see it. It's also true that the dungeon is not a place like it is at Cape Coast. The dungeon is the human heart. There's no corporate greed without humans. <laughs> There's no rape and abuse without humans. There's no corrupt systems without people to protect the system and lie about it. Our first call, yours and mine, is not to place or position, whether it's to chapels or dungeons, or a certain thing to do. Our first call is ever and always to person, to love and obedience to Jesus Christ, no matter the cost, to hearts that tolerate no dungeon corner to exist hidden from his light. Throughout history, many have thought that if you avoid the dungeons of this world, you will stay clean. But to do so is to fail to follow our Savior, he who went out on the dung heaps of this world looking for us. Many of you are going. Many of you are doing this work. Good. But remember this. The dungeon is, first of all, in us, not out there. That is what created the dungeons out there. Do not fool yourselves into thinking that you follow your uh, savior where others have failed to do so, all the while hiding dungeons in your own life and souls, whether it be pride or pornography. Dear bride of Christ, that's what you are, the body of Christ. Don't go to church. Don't attend church. Don't be busy with church. Be the church. Look like your master. Look like him when nobody's looking. Look like him in your home, in your neighborhoods, in your nation, and around the world. Go to the dung heaps. But start with the internal one, and then go to the external ones. Let your God transform what is in you so that he can use you to transform what is around you. Take up your part in the unfinished story of Jesus' risen life. There's going to be microphones uh, around. Eugene and Tim have one. So if you have a question in the moment, just go ahead and hold your hand up high. They'll bring it to you. Dr. Langberg, I'll start with maybe one or two. It's the liberty, right? <laughs> I brought you here. Um, as far as forms of abuse, we have been educated more recently. More books, your books, uh, Darby Strickland, Jeremy Pierre, his new book on uh, domestic abuse in the home. Uh, more people are writing Deepak Reju, his book On Guard. 
Uh, but when there are abuses that are outside of the realm of physical and sexual, it seems that churches often struggle to identify these uh, and then to call them abuse and oppression, uh, maybe because we're uneducated on to know what a pattern is, uh, you know, because they can be erratic. Uh, how can churches grow in their awareness, in particular, of forms of abuse and oppression that aren't what they might think to be the more obvious ones of physical, sexual, but it's still, it's financial, it's emotional, it's spiritual, uh, the, the way that people are really just being crushed and overwhelmed uh, in the context of the church, things that we could do to, to grow to care well there. The word abuse basically means to misuse something or someone, which means all of us are guilty. We've all misused a human being in some fashion. Um, when, when we talk about something, let's say, like verbal abuse, I mean, the scriptures are full of what's supposed to come out of our mouths and what's not supposed to come out of our mouths. We haven't really taught that very strongly, I don't think. Um, somebody using their position to abuse someone verbally, emotionally, um, spiritually, you know, because of who I am and what I do and how famous I am or whatever else it is, I can do these things to you and hurt you and I never touch your body. Never touch it. Um, domestic violence can be not physical. I mean, you can destroy a human being with words. You can. You can destroy a human being with words and emotions. And then you take a couple scriptures on. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I think that we have probably in some ways protected ourselves from having to face these truths and having if we really think these things like um, spiritual abuse and emotional abuse and verbal abuse and all that kind of stuff are heinous things in the eyes of God that would be quite a wake up call to about 99.9% of us hmm. we, we didn't mean it we had a bad day. We, we always talk ourselves out of things that are damaging to humans created in the image of our God. And the church ought to be in, in the first in line about this. You know, so if, if, you know, like with marriages all the time, well, at least he didn't hit her. And that's a quote that I've heard many times over the years. And yes, he did. He just didn't use his mouth. I mean, his hands, he used his mouth. He hit her. So we have minimized sin, and we have reluctantly, frankly, given my 50 years, reluctantly agreed that if you beat somebody up, that's not a good thing, or if you rape them, that's not a good thing. We didn't used to do that. We used to say those things didn't happen, and the people were lying. Now we say, okay, those things happen, but we still don't get it, <laughs> that every word that comes out of our mouths the way we use feelings, the way we use scripture, the way we use our position and authority. Human beings, like the enemy at the beginning of all time, used his gifted mouth to create complete disaster on the planet. And human beings toddled along behind him. We still are. Uh. I think one of the things for me with those questions in the church and my own life is that Part of what this should do is lead us to some significant self-examination. 
before God. Amen. Uh, your, what you laid out for us was a vision that was simple in many ways. Talk, tears, time. Uh, you know, you're Presbyterian, I'm Baptist, so we have, but our members have authority so in, in some ways. Kid. I All can right. whatever All denomination right. so, is in the room. Okay, so I think we have both right now. Uh, <laughs> we whatever but but when we think of uh, equipping our members in this way, probably many of them might think, uh, I hear this. But it's really the kind of the, the leadership that needs to be doing this. But what you're presenting is more of a, a congregational vision whole that the whole body is, is doing this. Anything that you might say other than your books, certainly your books, we're, we're uh, recommending those, that these people could read so that they could help carry this burden. Because it seems that many times some of these victims are actually going to come to them before they come to me as a, as a pastor, especially if it's a woman. Uh, what would you recommend that they could do to equip themselves to help serve? Well, uh, one of the things, that, if you go on my website, which is just my name, it's full of resources. It's full. It's got a book list way beyond anything I've ever written. It's got recordings of talks, uh, instruction things in different places. All kinds of things are there. So, and there are, there are others out there. I mean, there's... It, probably what you ought to do is have people in the church explore those things and come up with a list and recommend them, not just to the leaders in the church, but to the entire body of the church. Um, the very fact that you're doing that and shining a light on it says something to those who are hurting. That you acknowledge this happens, it's in the room. So we want our church to be trained. So go here and listen to these videos, go here and read these books, Let's get together and discuss them and how we might uh, use them. And just one other thing. I have had some extremely difficult, I've had several women who've been trafficked, uh, often by their own fathers and uncles and grandfathers. I mean, just the devastation of the life is unspeakable. And I, I have had wonderful experiences through the years of people in churches whose role is to pray. Mm. And when I look back on some of those things, uh, I had a woman who came to see me and didn't speak for six months. I kept wondering what I was doing wrong. I wasn't doing anything. It took me a long time to figure that out. But it, it, I had people praying regularly for these people. And that was their job, so to speak. That was their role. And it's immeasurable. Mm. It's immeasurable. So you don't have to do the front line stuff. You, that's needed as much as the front line. Amen. All right, we'll take some questions. Where are the microphones at? So, we're at where we have both. All right, we're going to go right here with Mary first and then Josh. Hi, Dr. Lambert. Um, my name is Mary Evans. Uh, thank you so much for giving us this talk on trauma and sexual abuse. Um, my question is geared towards the end of your talk where you had mentioned don't attend the church, don't be busy with the church, don't leave the church. Yes, um, and I don't literally mean don't attend church either. <laughs> Just thank you, thank you. <laughs> Next Sunday, no, 10 a.m. <laughs> what I mean there is that we do things that are rituals or uh, excess, you know, they're external. They're things we do and we, it's, it's like a salve and it tells us that we're being good. 
and we're doing the right things, but we're really not being like Christ. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. It means character work. It means that the fruit of my life looks like the fruit of the Spirit. It means that the way I respond to people who are hurting or angry or whatever looks like Christ. And I think, um, you know, if you... Everybody's seen the headlines, right? In terms of church after church after church, and we're not done yet. And all the with all the abuse that's been hidden, we have seen church as a system that needs protecting because it's God's. Only oh, looks nothing like Him, and so we we let sheep be wounded, and we cover up the person who the wolf. And we might even elevate the wolf. That we're not being the being the church when we do that. We don't look anything like our head. So it's both an individual looking like our head and a corporate looking like our head, is what I mean. And that's character that bears fruit that looks like him. That's helpful. Josh Lavin and then Tim over here. the simplest things you can do is ask, not quite that bluntly, of course, because it'll probably scare them under the table, but, um, you know, has anybody else in your life ever made you feel like that, even if they didn't do exactly the same things? Or, um, you know, do, do you have anybody in your life that feels safe? Do you have anybody in your life that feels really unsafe? What makes you think that? So part of what you're doing is helping them think by asking those questions. Um, I don't. I mean, you can't grow up in a home and be abused for years and know how to pick out safe people. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You long for safe people, but you, you could be easily duped by someone who looks safe on purpose to be unsafe. So just asking the question puts it in their head. They're not used to having that question in their head. And so, you know, even, you know, I've done this with clients, you know, so spend the next week or two just watching people at church and come back and tell me, does anybody make you uncomfortable? I'm not saying they did anything, just did they make you uncomfortable? Can we figure out why that is? Is there somebody that makes you feel safe? Can we figure out why that is? So you're helping them actively think through those categories and examine them. Robin, and then Los, and then right over here. Okay. Thank you for thank you for your comments, and I really appreciated your um, list for the for the congregation to to have the congregation look at different resources. I'm interested in do you have examples of institution religious institutions that have good uh, accountability? standards or good practices 
suggestions for what we should do so that the tares won't be protected by the seemingly wheat or there would be places to go when this happens in churches? Well, I, I don't have a list of places like that. I'm just actually in my years seeing churches ask about how to do that and be that. Uh, I need to sit down. I feel faint. Okay. You take your time. I got you. It's right behind you. Ken Huffman? Yep. That's better. You You're good? Yeah, water would be good. Okay. We have your Okay, thank you. There you go. All right. I don't feel dizzy anymore. You want to be a lower chair and I hand you a mic? Okay, that's good. All right. We're on our way. <laughs> yeah, no, no. You're working. All right. There okay. You, go. you take your time. Or do you need us to just pray? Call. No, no, I'm okay. I, I, no, I don't feel busy. Now. Take your time. You just hold it up whenever you're ready. Okay. Just let me get some water. Yeah, because the nurse, she's going to come up in a minute and wet your neck. Just keep keeping. You're good. Okay. Thank right. you. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> she's back. <laughs> Where were we? You were answering Robin's question. Uh, she was asking one on institutions, places people could go when there's uh, a situation in the context of the church. I'm really thinking about churches. What layers should churches add? This has happened in the Southern Baptist Convention. What, what, what should we have had as far as accountability, as far as layers that would be wise to add? Um, well, first of all, you need to believe the victims. I have done this work for 50 years. I don't know how many people I've seen have been abused in various ways. I've had two lie to me, two. Churches tend to assume that the, there's probably only two who, who told the truth. <laughs> Nobody wants to be abused. Nobody wants to tell you they were abused. Nobody wants you to know they were abused. The resistance to speaking the truth about your own life is very large. So when somebody comes to you and tells you something like that, whether it was I was abused as a child by my grandfather, or whether it's so-and-so in the church, did whatever, they don't want to be there. It took courage to do it. So that's the first layer. <laughs> then we need to figure out what to do that's safe for them. And that might not be something in the church, depending on the church and what's going on. It might mean um, referring them to somebody who does this work. Um, it might mean getting them to uh, think about what they're willing to do or something in order to learn or grow or be safe or whatever. Uh, and that you're willing, if they decide they want to see somebody, you'll take them to the first appointment. You'll wait in the waiting room. They don't have to think about how to get there in the car. 
Um, so you can do lots of things like that that are not big, but they're huge, frankly. They're just huge. And that you believe them, and you want to help them, and you want to help them get what they need in a way that's safe. Just saying those words, for many people, it's the first time anybody's ever talked to them like that. And then, of course, churches need to figure out a whole lot about how to do this. They're going to take care of their sheep. Steve, right? Does this work? Yep. Hello, Diane. Hello. Um, gratitude and a question for you. When I look at Jesus, he approaches many people, many broken women, and he loves well. And I feel like you helped us tonight to love well. Uh, some emotions so painful, realms that we may not be in touch with, give people a voice. Hear their hurt. Encourage them to be patient. So you be patient. Really good stuff. And I see, I see Jesus is really good at that, even if he has brief encounters. Okay? That's the gratitude. The question is, he also seems very good at helping people see him. So he sees them, he hears them. And most of them end up seeing him and hearing them. So the question is, can you say something along those lines? Because surely even sufferers sin. Even sufferers, and, I, and you realize, I'm not saying from the Bible, I'm not saying patterns, you, you, you realize. I'm saying even sufferers are going to have wrong ideas of God and, and unbelief and hopelessness and ingratitude sometimes imagine suffering, you know. So I know you, you, you have the experience on the injustice the other way. But I'm just saying, can you help us help, help people see Jesus in, in a way that helps them and is true to how Jesus helps anyone? Does that, does that make sense? Well, yes, except that my experience is that when somebody has been significantly abused, particularly over a long period of time, they're not even going to be interested in seeing him for a long time. The only way they're going to see him is in me. Not by my words about him, not even by his words about him. I have people who, you know, first come to see me and it takes them three years before they even pick up a Bible, let alone read something. And I understand why. You know, if you have a, past, a pastor, father, who sexually abused you for 10 years, the Bible doesn't look very good, hmm. which is not their problem. It's Anyway, the, that's why I say be the church. People get hungry for Christ when they get tastes of who he really is in us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's how it happens. Mm -hmm. it, and sometimes you do that with words, depending on the situation and the person. But sometimes it can't be words. It has to be living with walking with, listening to, honoring them, weeping with them, which Jesus told us to do. <laughs> There's no words there. So I, I think that, that uh, we have to be very careful. And I often, with somebody that I've seen for a while, and everybody comes to the office knows <laughs> it's a bunch of Christians in the office. You know, it's not. Uh, but I will ask permission 
You know, I had a thought about something that relates to that that's from the Bible. Would you be okay if I told it to you? When people have been practically killed by the Bible, mm -hmm. I ask permission. And then they have to say, which is, I mean, that's so foreign to them. They drop their jaws and say yes because they don't know what else to do. <laughs> but that, that's a stunning thing for them, that it's not forced on them. Uh, so I, I think we tend, in the, certainly in the conservative Christian world, we, we think about it all as being words, the word, our words, whatever. We've lost the be with. Emmanuel is God with us. And we know who God is because he was here. And his character taught us, which makes us hungry for God. That's the model. Carlos, and then if you have a question, raise your hand. Tim will bring uh, the, uh, the mic to you. How are you doing, doctor? I'm better. Right here. I'm not, I'm not standing up. <laughs> we'll, keep, we'll keep it that way. <laughs> um, first of all, uh, you gave us quite scared. I hope you're okay. Um, oh, she sees you. You're good. I know. Question I'm up. I'm making sure she does. How you doing? Um, <laughs> well, I hope you're okay. Um, you gave us quite scared. I know she that many people scramble at the same time. <laughs> First time. I didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> no, that was um, You're a doctor, so you're better qualified to answer this question. My question is, with the uh, overturn of Roe versus Wade, you can see uh, uh, an astounding amount of women come forward and express, express their uh, displeasure, concern, you know, what we are, our stance are as far as approach, uh, abortion and pro-choice. For those who are a victim of any kind of abuse, whether it's rape or whatnot, what would your uh, advice to them as well as to us as to counsel those who have been abused? Especially, it doesn't even matter where it's in overall. What's your word of advice for those who have been abused? And you want to proclaim God's gospel without being uh, overlooking or condescending, for lack of a better word, so we can foster great relationships and find peaceful and productive resolutions, even at the midst of where we're at socially with pro-life, pro-choice, and the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Um, a couple thoughts. Um, I'm certainly not going to speak politically or anything. I do want to say, number one, that it, it is breaking my heart to see what the church is doing in terms of its vitriol and harshness and judgment of people in the world, but of other Christians as well. You don't think the way I do, you're trash. I, 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 that makes me cry. We're nothing like Christ when we do that. So the discussion has been completely a mess, number one. Number two, there has been no, in most areas where I have read or listened or anything, there has been no care for the women. When they first came out with, you know, no more Roe v. Wade kind of thing at all, even if even if you got raped by your father, even if, if you, you 
know, we're t whatever. It doesn't matter what happened to the woman. This is still the thing that has to happen. And I, I'm not making a, a um, I'm not saying what I think should be the answer to that, but the treatment of women in that. You, you be a, a victim of incest, a victim of rape, a victim of trafficking. Oh, well, you have to go do this. You can't do that. You have to go do this. There was nothing said that showed care for them. Who, they've just they've been given The way they've been treated is unspeakable. And now they're supposed to just go do something. With, and nobody's saying, how do we take care of these women? You know, whether, whether we believe this or believe that, how do we take care of women who, number one, are being abused in all sorts of ways in this area, and number two, are vulnerable because they're female? I mean, you guys don't have to worry about getting pregnant. <laughs> So I, 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 I would like to see the church care for the women without all this vitriol and if you don't agree with me then you're not worth anything and this is what we believe and you have to have that, without saying, tell me, you know, one of the things that I have learned from the work I have done, which is what I think Emmanuel did, is teach me what it's like to be you. That's what we need to ask. Teach me what it's like to be you. And therefore, knowing what it's like to be you, then how do I care for you? That's what I do. But that's what he did. He learned what it's like to be us. Not like he needed teaching. But he, he showed us that's what he was doing. And we're not doing that across the board, as far as I'm concerned, with other people. We're certainly not doing it with women in this situation. Emily McDonald. Oh, sorry, right behind you. Okay, sorry. Hi. As a survivor of years of physical abuse, I was blamed by the church and um, told it was my fault that if I just behaved myself, it wouldn't happen. And I, I think, and I want your opinion on this, I think sometimes the church, the first thing we need to do is say, I'm sorry, you have to go through that. You're absolutely correct. I would like to say two things. Number one, that is flagrantly against the scriptures. The scriptures say what comes out of a man or a woman comes from the heart of the man, not the woman standing in front of him. I don't care what she did. She could have been awful. What we do, God says, tells us about us, mm -hmm. not the person we do it to. Mm -hmm. So first of all, what they did was flagrantly wrong from his perspective. And yes, teach me what it's like to be you. Again, that's what Emmanuel did. So if somebody comes to you and says, this is what's happening in the home and this is how I'm being treated and everything, number one, we need to find safety for somebody like that. Number two, whatever he's doing isn't her fault, even if she's awful. <laughs> it's still not her fault. It came from him. And number three, we, you know, we, we need to say what is teach him what it's like to be you and how can I walk with you in this? To support you, to love you, to care for you. Do you agree with what I, everything I think or not? We missed the boat. Sister, what's your name? 
Tabitha, thank you so much. It takes a lot of courage to share that period, and especially in a room full of people, many of whom I'm assuming you don't know. And I'm just thinking of Dr. Laneberg's talk this evening, perhaps for yourself or others. There might be here who this talk was hard to hear, and it's triggered in some way. If our church or one of the other pastors could be helpful to you this evening, or our deacons, again, we have both male and female deacons who would be happy to, to get together with you, sit down, open the scripture with you, pray with you. Please feel free to find one of us. If you don't know who any of those people are, uh, we have some of our members sitting along the, the back there. They'd be happy to direct you there if we could minister to you. We'd be very happy to do that, even to pray with you. Dr. Laneberg, just uh, as we close, perhaps when you earlier you were saying at the beginning of your talk, it's always in the room. You, you mentioned that when you were meeting with our seminarians. Uh, just, I know some people are aware of the stats. Could you just maybe quickly share about your work, how it's predominantly been in the church and what you've seen kind of in the context of the church as it relates to the one to four, uh, one in every four women, one in every 20 men that you were sharing with us and how that's happening in the context of the church. Just maybe to quickly educate people as a final comment. Yeah, the uh, current stats are one in every four women experience sexual abuse or rape in their lifetime. One in four. So you think about that. Suppose we put all the women together in the room and counted it out. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. They're now saying one in 20 boys and men. They don't think that's accurate. They think it's not, it's worse than that. (laughs) That's what they think. But what happened originally uh, when, when the government tried to do stats on men and they went around trying to figure out how many boys and men were raped in the United States in a given year, the answer was zero. I mean, I've been with human nature too long to believe that one. So, so I, I think that uh, we have to keep in mind that this is not a female problem in terms of being victims. There are men also who have been terrible victims, both as boys and even later in life. And so um, we want to be a safe place for people to say what happened, to tell the truth about what was done and to tell the truth about the damage it has done to them and uh, to be willing to walk with them. But, you know, I've done this work for 50 years. And when I first started out, I was told, uh, I told them this earlier today, a, a young college girl came to me in 1972 and on the second or third time threw her hair over her face like my ballet dancer did and said, my father used to do weird things to me. I had no idea what she was talking about. There were no books, there was nothing. And I went to a supervisor who told me, women tell these hysterical stories and your job is not to get hooked by them. So after several women told me those stories, I quit talking to the supervisor. (laughs) Which tells you something about me. (laughs) Truth be told. So, but it's in our churches. And it isn't necessarily active in a church at any given moment, but there's always victims in the room. Always. And so we need to keep that in mind, and we need to recognize that. And the fact that somebody has been victimized growing up by somebody who called themselves a Christian and they showed up in church, talk about courage. We have no idea. And so... We need to turn the light on in the sense of we know this is in the room. And it breaks our heart and we want to be of help. And 
you know, listen and walk with and do what we can. Um, I could count on one hand the number of pulpits I've heard anything like that ever said in public. Truly, in 50 years. So it's coming to light now because of the situations in the church and leadership and covering up and all of those things. But it was always in the room. And it doesn't always come from somebody who's in church leadership. It comes from the homes that are there. And whether it's domestic abuse or sexual abuse or rape or whatever, it's there. And we ignore it. And we're, it's, it's like erasing the victim. They don't exist. Oh, they're there and they're this and they're that and we like them and all that kind of stuff, but they're not a victim. But they are. And so we, I mean, we live in a what, fearful, fallen world. And we need to be honest with ourselves about that. Church is supposed to be a sanctuary, yes, where these things don't happen, but it doesn't mean they're not in the room. Amen. Dr. Lamberg, I want to thank you for your time. One of the things that's helpful when reading your book is uh, when we see that really church should be a place where we identify this, honesty takes place and how much self-deception there is as you were highlighting in your book. So if you have not read Dr. Laneberg's book, 